Blessed to have the message today by Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled, To Build Up the Bible, excuse me, Body from Ephesians chapter 4. Good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here, as it always is on another beautiful Sabbath day. And as was mentioned today, my message is entitled, To Build Up the Body. Uh, and I want to start out just to ask a couple questions, but really just one question, and that is, when I say these two words, in your mind silently, you can think about it, what images come to your mind? The first one is church, and the second one is ministry. Church and ministry. Now, we're all from different you know, walks of life, different experiences and things like this, but I think most of us would agree that when people hear those two words, they probably think of maybe a picture of a building, a picture like this, a church building. They might think of pews like you were sitting in right now and maybe some singing and things like that. When they hear the word ministry, oftentimes we probably think about pastors or Someone who sits behind a pulpit and preaches, kind of like I am right now. And of course, this makes sense. These terms, church and ministry, they're embedded into our language, many different ideas associated with it. But the way that the Bible uses these terms isn't always the same way that maybe our common modern world uses these terms. Ministry just simply means service. There's a variety of ministries, the way that the Bible presents it. Church, it's not referring to a church building, typically. We know that the word church in the Bible comes from the Greek word ekklesia, in its most basic form, it literally means an assembly of people. It's people, not a building, that the word church is referring to. And in Christian circles, and the way that the New Testament presents it to us, it's the group of individuals that happen to be the called out ones that are a part of Christ's body. And as members of this body, every single one of us have a role in contributing to the building up of that body. We've all been given a gift. We've all been measured a gift from God. And that gift God intends us to use. And so the message that I'm bringing today actually comes from Ephesians chapter 4, verses really primarily 8 through 12, but we're going to read 1 through 12 because I gave a message earlier this year that kind of touched upon the first part of Ephesians 4, and I'm going to review some of that. But I want to really get into this idea of what Paul says about the gifts that have been bestowed upon us as his followers, that is, as God's followers. Let's read, turn with me to Ephesians 4, and I'm going to read just all 12 verses. And that was a typo in the bulletin. It says 1 through 17. My intention was 1 through 12 with a focus on 7 through 12. So Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 1, he says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, 
just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led, captive, or he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Verse 9, now this, he ascended, what does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower part of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. And so just to review this first section of Scripture, Paul talks about this idea of worthiness. And if you've read Paul very often, even whenever I was, I remember a little over a year ago when I was going over uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians, you'll see that this idea of walking worthy pops up as a theme time and time again as you read Paul. This Greek word worthy literally means bringing up the beam, meaning equivalence. And yesterday, I just so happened to engage in an activity that gave me a good illustration in my mind on what exactly this looks like. So we have, at my work, we have this backdrop. And it's kind of like, you know, we don't have any curtains anymore. But imagine, you know, a backdrop for the purpose of pictures. So, you know, I work at Bixby Ninth Grade Center. So we have a backdrop that has, it's a curtain where you can take pictures in front of it. And behind it is our logo for the school. Well, this backdrop is literally on beams. It's basically a square, and they're movable, okay, because you, you can transport and things like this. And so if one side is up higher than the other, then the backdrop's going to be crooked, right? It's not going to be an equivalence to the other side of the beam. And so that's exactly what this word worthy means. It means to bring up one side of the beam to equivalence of the other side. So Paul is admonishing his readers to ask themselves if their conduct is in equivalence to the life that has been set before those who have been called to the hope in Jesus Christ. Simply put, does our conduct in life properly and equivocally, equivocally reflect our calling as Christians? And that's what Paul's asking. And of course, the things that drive our conduct include a myriad of things, but number one, what we place value in. What do we place value in in this life? And that will in turn affect our thoughts. It will affect our attitudes. And the results in what we decide to consume in life. Whether it be our focus on our daily, day-to-day -day lives. Our focus in our entertainment. Uh, or whether it be something in work or personal matters. All of those things go together to drive the conduct that we have in this life. And so in bringing this idea of walking worthily, Paul gives us three basic characteristics. We've all read these before, but I want to go over them. Humility is the first one. Humility is the first one. Walk in a hu humble way. Now we know that Jesus Christ, we can go to Philippians, the second chapter, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, that thought it not robbery, essentially, that talks about the humility of Jesus Christ 
and taking our place and coming in the likeness of very men. And we see that not only does he prove this through his actions, but even his teachings was all about humility. As someone that had far more knowledge than anyone he was around, he didn't, you know, act lofty, well, I know more than you, and I have this understanding, but he always pointed us into humility. Whether it be pointing to a child and talking about how this has to be, and if we want to receive the kingdom, we'll receive it like this little child. Whether about talking about service, whether about talking about putting people before us, before ourselves, or that the first would be last. We see walking according to Christ is walking in humility. The second one is gentleness. The word for gentleness is the same word for meekness as we find in the King James Version. And it describes a considerate spirit or attitude. And some in our modern world, we, name, we may know, may look at this as not a strength, but maybe a point of weakness. Not a good characteristic, but maybe it points to someone who's just non-confrontational, just allows people to walk all over them. But I think we would all agree that in truth, being gentle and being meek takes more strength because it describes a person who can bring themselves into self-control. Self-control is the result of humility and then gentleness and meekness, and it's not easy. It's not an easy characteristic at all. All of us would probably agree that it takes more strength to control our tongue, our anger, our attitude, and our actions to the natural impulses that we have in this life. And not only that, we know that being gentle or meek is one of the fruits of the Spirit as found in the book of Galatians. The last one, patience and long-suffering, essentially the same thing. They're concepts that brings with it the reluctance to avenge wrongs. The reluctance to avenge wrongs, which means to be long-tempered, not looking to settle old scores or hold on to grudges. Again, a natural byproduct of being humble and gentle. These are not easy things. These are the things that are characteristic of people that walk worthy according to the journey it is to be a Christian. And it doesn't get any easier because we live in 2023. Human nature transcends time, right? In all generations, we had impulses and, and, and temptations and things like that, no matter the circumstances. It may look a little bit differently, we may have some technology and things like this, and our society is a little bit different, but we're still human beings. We still have the natural, carnal side of us that wants to be selfish, that wants to sometimes you know, be bent on getting what is ours and getting back at people and things like that. Again, patience and long-suffering, again, are descriptions or are fruits of the Spirit as found in the book of Galatians. All of us can just think of how patient and long-suffering that God the Father has been with us and still is. Because I can tell you, I know he has been with me and still every single day. And so Paul brings out these ideas, these characteristics, and he says it's essentially for the common purpose to continue in the unity of the Spirit. And seven different terms... Seven different things he talks about in reference to we have one of them. Seven different items. Number one, one body. We all have been placed into one body 
which of course is the body of Christ. We've all been given one spirit. All of us have been given the same spirit, God's spirit, and this one spirit dwells in all of us. It is God's spirit that has moved in us. It's God's spirit that has brought us to faith and continues to sustain us as a way to make us always connected to God. That same spirit that prompted Paul to go from being a Pharisee, a persecutor of Christians, to a vessel to the, to the Gentiles, as Christ called them, is that same spirit that has moved in us and allowed us to have the hope of Christ that has transformed us and is transforming us and is living within us and allowing God to live within us, within our hearts. One hope. All true believers have one hope. We're all, of course, looking forward to the same thing, and that is the promises of eternal life, for the redemption of our bodies, for the resurrection, to be reunited with people that we've lost, believers, fellow believers, for that kingdom to come to this earth, and to be made incorruptible in the image of Christ. All of us have that one hope. That one hope. We don't have an individual, you know, uh, destination, so to speak. We don't know what God's kingdom will look like completely. We know that Christ will be king. Christ will be supreme. God the Father eventually will come down and everything will be delivered to him. That's what matters most. We don't know our roles. We don't know what it looks like. I don't think that our human brains, the smartest person on this entire earth, the, you could probably take the uh, an individual that could be considered, if you could find such a person that has the highest IQ to ever live and probably wouldn't be able to even start to comprehend what the kingdom of God is going to be like. One Lord. All of us have one Lord who is over all of us, is the head of the church. We all know that that is Christ's body and he's the head. And there's no other Lord but one, that is Jesus Christ and during this day and age, when Paul said this, there was lots of lords, right? Lots of different deities, but also lots of different, what you would consider, physical human deities. People that would ascribe deity to just fleshly human beings and worship them and honor them and give authority to them as such. And Paul says, as the scriptures tell us, at some point, and later John Revelation, at some point, all of them, we're going to bow down to the one and only Jesus Christ who is the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. The fifth item, one faith. We all have the same doctrinal core and are like-minded regarding the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints as Jude 3 says. Now, does that mean that we believe every single little thing the same? Of course not. But the essentials the essential gospel message that there was this individual, that there, there was a, there's a God in heaven that created this universe, that established a plan, and that called out an individual name of Abraham and had a nation of Israel, and eventually through the long line of succession came the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, came into physical humanhood, lived a life sinless, died and rose again. And that only through him can you be saved. That is the core of our faith. Yes, there might be maybe some things that we differ on. We might see some prophetic things a little bit different. We may look at, for example, you know, 
some symbols in certain days, like the Day of Atonement. We, we may look at those two goats and say, well, I think that it really represents something a little bit different than the next person. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the trunk of the tree, the core docu- uh, doctrines of faith, the salvific doctrines, the doctrines that save us, that are at the core of our salvation and of our redemption, and that is Jesus Christ. And with that, of course, come obedience and come to other things that we all, all are all in, like, in likeness with. Sixth thing, baptism, one baptism. All of us have been baptized in the same baptism, repenting of our sins and accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior and giving him all allegiance. And then lastly, one God. We all worship the same God and thus understand that he is the only God. And so there, Paul goes on to verse 7 and starts bringing out kind of what I want to set and focus on for the primary purpose of this message today, and that is, to use what Christ has given us. Let's reread verse 7 through, through, let's go through, through 11. Actually through 10. 7 through 10. Paul says, rereading Ephesians 4, 7 through, through 10. He says, but to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean but that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who descended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now there's a lot of ideas that are packed in to this little string of scriptures. He uses this word grace that says that grace has been given to us in a variety of measures. Now what we have to remember is is that this isn't talking about the grace that has been bestowed upon us as we receive salvation. But rather how God has given different measures of gifts. We've all received the same grace in terms of salvation. That Christ died for us. That we have redemption through his blood. But here Paul's talking about the variety of grace in terms of the gifts that he has given us human beings, his followers. God has bestowed upon the members of Christ's body different gifts to build up the body. Now there's several other scriptures that agree with this, including one in 1 Peter, where Peter writes, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another. Provide that service. Use that gift in service as good stewards of the manifold grace of God or the, you know, the various gifts of God because we all have not been given the same gift. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4-6 through 6 says, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit, completely agreeing to what he just said earlier here in Ephesians 4. There are differences of ministries, services, but the same Lord, and there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Now, what's interesting is, and I haven't quite looked at this until preparing for this message, is that in verse 8 through 10, which we pretty much just read, we read that Paul actually pulls from one of the Psalms. 
He pulls from Psalm 68, verse 18, but he does so in a little bit of a unique way. There have been many different people that have interpreted this differently uh, and what exactly was Paul getting at because he doesn't use Psalm 68, verse 18 the way that we would find it in the Masoretic Hebrew text or in the LXX, which is the Septuagint version of the, of the Old Testament. We read in Ephesians 4, 8 through 10, Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now, if you were to go to, if you were to, go to uh, Psalm 68, verse 18, 19, it appears that the way that it's presented to us in that text, it actually is talking about gifts being given by men. Like men gives the gifts. But here, Paul is using it differently. What has been said is, is that Paul probably was actually using an Aramaic Targum version of Psalm 68. Now what that is, is it's an oral tradition, I guess you would say. It's not that he was trying to you know, use that as authority, but he was using that so his audience would understand in the way and the, the point he was trying to give home, which was the gifts that Christ has given to us. So in the context of the Aramaic Targum of Psalm 68, it refers to, and Jews during this time and even afterwards, would read that, that psalm and that Targum and refer to it and look at it and interpret it as go, God's going up to Mount Sinai. God's going up to Mount Sinai and Moses receiving the law and then Moses bringing it down to the people as a gift. In fact, on the day of Pentecost during this period of time, uh, they would read Psalm 68 and different versions of Psalm 68 on the day of Pentecost because they were celebrating, as we know traditionally Jews, look at Pentecost as the day that they received the law. And so they would associate their uh, Psalm 68, these gifts, with the giving of the law, that Moses ascended up to the mountain and brought back down gifts to men, and that gift being, of course, the law. Another aspect of this passage, which is interesting, is the use of the word captives, or the concept of captives. In this time, military victors, people who would go out and would fight and would defeat an opposing army, they would oftentimes receive gifts, plunder, tribute, and they would distribute it among those who were their followers, their comrades, their fellow soldiers. So we read, for example, in Colossians 2.15, we're not going to go there, that Jesus, if you were to read it, it's presented in a way that Jesus is described as a victor over the evil principalities and the power of this world. And the way that Paul describes it is as he's almost using Roman imagery of a Roman triumphal procession describing Jesus' victory over the evil principalities of the world by his work. On the cross. So the passage here in Ephesians, he's talking about his victory over death. He goes into the lowest parts of the earth, which is, of course is a reference to the grave, and then he ascends far above. We know he's raised and he's resurrected. By using these concepts, Paul is showing how Jesus, the victor, both over death and over the evil principalities and the powers of this world is now the rightful gift bearer. And what's interesting also is that what happened on the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 
as we sometimes refer to, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, which was at one time associated with the giving of the law, through this, in the way that Paul's presenting it to us, is almost like now it's associated with God's Spirit, this very Spirit, which is the mechanism that makes it possible for God's law to be written on our hearts, as well as the way that God bestows the gifts that he is giving to us in the variety of ways and the variety of gifts that he gives us. So, I know that was a mouthful, but there's a lot here that Paul's trying to present to us as the victor over death. He's the one now distributing gifts to us in a variety of the manifold different ways that he provides it. So in verse 11, we just read that, Paul cites multiple offices of the church, which, of course, in this day and age, enabled the church to function, and to some extent, of course, in our modern days. The first one was apostles. Apostles were special individuals who were sent out and commissioned with a special authority as a delegate of God. We would look at, for example, the Apostle Paul. He's an apostle. We would look at Peter. Uh, we would look at James and some of these other individuals. And they would go out. They had been sent by God to go out, proclaim the gospel. But they would have a specific commission, of course, that they were to be taken up. And their authority was based upon the one who sent them, which was God the Father and Jesus Christ. We know that the Apostle Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. He would preach, of course, to the Jews. In a lot of these cities that he was writing to was a mixed city, a group of individuals that were both Jewish and Gentile. But it's interesting how he was chosen for this because he was a Pharisee that didn't just so happen to be a scholar of the Hebrew Bible and all the Pharisaic traditions, but what was also a scholar of? Of the Roman and Greek world. He was perfectly equipped as an apostle to the Gentiles to understand how to reach those individuals in the Gentile world that came from Gentile, Greek, Roman, pagan backgrounds. We, we see this in Acts when he goes to the Arapachibus and he goes to Mars Hill and all of these different things and he's able to present the gospel message in a way that would they, they would they would be able to understand and use, of course, uh, analogies that they grew up understanding. Prophets, literally, spokesmen for God. We know what a prophet is. Prophets are all throughout the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, they seem to continue on, at least during the times of the New Testament. And if it wasn't for prophets and apostles, and there's prophets that are discussed in the New Testament, we would not have a New Testament without these individuals. God raising up, of course, we're talking about for the purpose of equipping the body of Christ, we needed a New Testament. And God ensured that that took place. And that's a fascinating story in and of itself. In this list, it's also mentioned evangelists, which is simply messengers who proclaim the gospel message. Pastors, which is a reference to, a reference to an overseer someone who shepherds the flock, a local congregation, and teachers, someone who expounded on the word of God and teaches it and teaches others to do so. Now, maybe you don't fit into any of these categories. Not everyone's a teacher, not everyone's an apostle, not everyone is an evangelist, a prophet, of course. And so I think that in our circles, 
in Christendom and Christianity as it's come throughout the ages. Unfortunately, so many people think that these are the spiritual gifts, and if you're not one of these, you don't have one. Romans, the, third, the, the 12th chapter, verses 3 through 8, I think is interesting because here we see that Paul is talking about much more than just these gifts that were listed in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Verses 3 through 8, it says of Romans 12, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, everyone, I want to point out that word, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Common language that we see from Ephesians. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them if prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching. He who exhorts in the exhortation. He who gives with liberality. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. This is a much more general, broad spectrum of gifts that he's mentioning here than just what we find in Ephesians, the fourth chapter. And the purpose of this is simple. For the purpose of these gifts is for the equipping, the edifying, and the building up of the church. That is the body of Christ. Verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians 4. And he himself, he gave to be apostles, some prophets for some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That can't be done by just a single group of individuals, a small group. It's all of our jobs and responsibilities to take part in the edifying, the equipping of the body of Christ. This word equipping is, it's a Greek word, I don't pronounce it very well probably, but katartisman, katartisman, which simply means preparing, mending, or restoring to their proper use. Preparing, mending, or restoring to their proper use. Equip for the work of ministry, service. Equip for the work of ministry. Ministry means service. Every Christian, every one of us has a gift. Not just the ones that are brought out here by the Apostle Paul. The specific ones that we always read. And just like God has bestowed upon us a variety of gifts, we also come from a variety of backgrounds. We come from different traditions. And I think many of us would agree that the tradition that some of us, you know, years ago, and I was a little bit younger to remember, but the church tradition that, you know, this church came out of, there was... You know, kind of a thinking that really, you know, the, the, the ministry, they do the work. And the people, they just, you know, what's that old saying? Pay and pray. Right? The work's for them. You pay and pray so they can continue doing the work. And I think that, unfortunately, that is common in many circles. Many circles. When it comes to the idea of 
Who is in charge of the work? You know, when we read the Bible, a lot of times, especially in the New Testament and the Old Testament, but in this Christian walk, one big theme out of many is the idea of stewardship. We see it so often in Christ's parables. The idea of stewardship when it comes to being faithful stewards of what God has given us. A few weeks ago, we now, you know, pretty much finished up our Matthew study. But a few weeks ago, we were looking at one of the parables in our Matthew study of Jesus, the parable of the talents. And we were discussing it. It's in Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. But in that parable, we see this master give three servants a different grouping of talents. Now, talents was a measure of money. The first one got five. The second one got two, and the, the last servant got one. And all of the individuals, both the first one and the second one, they went out and they properly invested that, that talent, that measure of money, and they were able to, you know, turn a profit. They were able to make good on what they were, you know, entrusted with. But the last one, the last one that was only given one, it says that he buried it. He buried the only thing that he was given, just one talent. Now, there's many different things that we could get out of that parable. And the reason I'm bringing it up right now is because one of the things that we were talking about, because we're, we're discussing that, you know, some of the questions that we had, and, you know, why do you think he did that? Well, the scriptures talk about how he was, you know, his excuse was, I knew you to be a hard man, you know, when the master returned. But one of the comments that was made really resonated with me, and that is the idea that that person could have perhaps thought to himself, I've only been given one thing. I'm not going to be able to make much from this. They've been, this one's been given five. This one's been given two. They're going to beat me. What I make doesn't really matter. It's not going to really amount to much. It's almost if possible that that servant actually looked down upon the little bit that he was given. And thought, what's the use? Now, why am I bringing that out? That might not have been the intention of that parable. That might just have been something that inspired a thought. But I can tell you, I do think that that is a common thinking among many people within Christianity. That, man, I, I don't really have a gift. I, I don't have anything to offer. I don't have anything to give. I, I can't preach. I can't teach. I'm not, not real smart. I don't have really much money. So I don't have much to give. And what I do have to give, it's really not going to help anyone. Instead of having faith that God may have given just a little bit. And he may not have given me this, you know, huge talent. These, these, these talents, I can't speak and things like that. But just maybe because, you know, <laughs> out of nothing, there's much from the God that we serve. Just maybe that little bit that he gave me can do wonders when it comes to impacting people for God's glory. That's the attitude I think that we have to take. That's the attitude I think that sometimes it's easy to just think that God, he hasn't really given me a gift and it's not going to really amount to much. This reminded me of a few years ago, actually, I think I gave this illustration in one of my messages on this 
uh, parable, but there's this book that came out in 2004 called The Fred Factor. And The Fred Factor was a book that was written by a guy by the name of Mark Sandburn. And he actually wrote this book, and it became, you know, one of New York's bestsellers, I think, like something like that, or Wall Street Journal's bestseller. And this individual, Mark Sandburn, he was a professional speaker, and he focused on leadership and business and organization and specifically customer service. And this book, The Fred Factor, was actually about a mailman, a mailman named Fred. You see, this mailman, he had the title of Fred. He wasn't a CEO, and the funny thing is, is that this individual, Sandberg, he, he's gonna, Sanborn, he's going to be talking to CEOs, he's going to be talking to these big business leaders, and he talks about this individual, Fred, as an example, one of the greatest examples he's ever seen of leadership, because although Fred was just a mailman, Fred did everything in his power to display the exemplary ways to be a mailman. Fred was just a mailman, but he would do everything he could to ensure every day that all the mail that he delivered was neatly bundled. It was delivered just at the right time. It was you know, put together in the mailbox in, in, a, in a protective way if there was a box or something like that. He would learn the schedules of each individual that he would deliver his mail to to make sure that he was delivering the mail at the appropriate time. Here you have a mailman that, you know, we live in a, in a world where that's probably not a real glamorous job, right? But Fred did everything he could to make sure he was doing his job to the best of his ability. What he had been given. He had been given and trusted with delivering mail, so he was going to do it right and to the best of his ability. So with that, what made me think of that is that that's, that's a great example. Of course, it's not in the Bible, but it, the, the sentiment is in the Bible in terms of being a faithful steward of what God has entrusted to us. So, in closing, in order for the body to be built up, we must first emphasize, of course, as we mentioned, a worthy walk of our calling. We have to focus on our walk and make sure that we're walking worthily. Secondly, we must realize our gift. No matter how small or insignificant you may think it is, Utilize that gift for the building up of the church of God, for the body of Christ. The hard part is this, and I can't give you a straight answer to this, determining what your gift is. I can't tell you what your gift is. Sometimes it may just be something that you have to work out on your own to discover it, but I can tell you this. Even though I can't tell you what your gift is, I can guarantee you on this Bible, if this Bible's faithful, which I truly believe and I think you believe as well, you have a gift. And God wants you to use it. He wants you to be a steward of that gift. If there's anything that I can be sure of, even if it's just my opinion, I believe whatever that gift is bestowed upon you, you're not going to loathe it. You're not going to hate it. It's going to feel natural. And you're going to be good at it. He's not going to give you, in my opinion, a gift that you hate. That you don't want to do. So in this, as we close this message, I encourage all of us to pray to God to have Him illuminate what the gift it is that He's given us. To remember that it's not you, it's not me, it's not us, but it's God who is the gift bearer. 
is Christ, who is the victor, who is the rightful individual to bestow gifts upon us. And know that if He, the, the God of the universe, and Christ the Son, has given us a gift, He will bless it to the edifying and the building up of His Son's body.